Why don't we open our Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 6 right now. If you guys don't have one, you can raise your hand. We have ushers that want to quickly ush a Bible over to you. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, we've been basically taking a look at the subject of spiritual warfare. And what I want to do by way of setup, kind of setting things up or getting things going, um, I have a little statement that I want to put up. It's basically what Paul informs us and what Paul ultimately exhorts us in a lot of ways. This is sort of summarize what we've been looking at. So what Paul has basically been describing to us in the book of Ephesians is that he informs us that we really have enemies. So in other words, if you're a follower of Jesus, um, life is not necessarily going to be perfect or easy for you. In fact, it may very well be challenging. And the reason for that is, is because the way Paul would describe it is we have enemies. Uh, we have enemies in the shape of the world, in the shape of our own flesh, meaning our own inordinate desires. God says, desire this, love this. And our hearts say, I'd rather desire something other than God. And then ultimately, what Paul has been basically unpacking for us, we also have another third and great uh, enemy against us that Paul describes as the devil, um, or the Old Testament describes it as the Satan or the accuser. Um, and all of these, if you want to think of it this way, bring with them an influence towards co- corrupting influences. Their influence, their main purpose is to corrupt that which God is bringing healing in. So if the gospel is God setting things right, if the gospel involves God bringing healing, God bringing restoration, God bringing forgiveness, God reordering an otherwise chaotic life, that that's what the gospel is, then what the attack will look like, the opposition will look like, these influences will look like, they will look like things that will come to undo all the good that God wants to do. So in other words, rather than uh, bring sort of a landscape where there's healing of relationships, these types of influences will try to ruffle things up and mess things up so that now you're involved in a bunch of broken relationships. Uh, where there's anger and bitterness and violence and rage and anxiety and all these other things. And yet all of these form kind of this enemy that Paul says, I want you to be aware of. That really they're all serving as a means to undo or to, un- uh, to re- remove the influences that God is trying to bring about in terms of restoring and healing in our lives, but also within the lives of those within our community. So in other words, this is not just about a pushback from a demonic realm for you as an individual. What this means is that there are people sitting right next to you in this broader community that aren't doing so great, that are going through rough times, that feel the weight of these corrupting influences in their heart, in their soul. They feel the weight of heaviness or weightedness in their lives. They feel the sense of brokenness. And that helps us understand that anytime we gather together, and any time you ask people, like, how are you doing? They're like, I'm doing great. Very good chance are that's nothing more than a fig leaf to cover up the fact that they're not doing great. The fact that they may feel totally defiled or the fact that they may be really inside becoming undone and falling apart. And yet what Paul is saying is that he wants to inform us that we have this enemy that is constantly trying to undo all the good that God is trying to do within our lives. The second thing that Paul does is he exhorts. The exhortation that Paul gives us is to be strong. Be strong in the Lord. This is in opposition to being weak. In other words, rather than, you know, the question could be asked, how do we know if one is strong? Well, Paul says, by standing. In other words, their posture will be one of stance as opposed to a posture of laying down 
in a vulnerable position. And what Paul is saying is, I want you to be able to be strong. And he says, and the other thing is also by applying the armor of God. So on the one hand, it's being alert. On the other hand, it's being armed. Being alert, having a state, having a mind, having an understanding that we are in the midst of war, that there are uh, corrupting influences that are constantly bombarding my mind, constantly getting me to go off the path of walking after Jesus, and simultaneously that God wants me to be able to be standing in the midst of that. So I'm not just simply giving into it all the time, but also that I would be armed, that God gives me tools so that I can withstand these various forms of onslaught and attack and destruction that oftentimes come into my life. So I'm going to read a couple passages, actually verses uh, 13 and 14, in two versions. One will be the ESV, and then one is not on screen. It's uh, from the message. And I read this to you guys last week. Uh, as I mentioned, message is not my favorite translation, but I like the way that he basically unpacks this verse and gives a little bit of insight. So in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 and 14, here's what he says. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. So what we're going to be taking a look at today is the latter part of that verse, which is the breastplate of righteousness. So last week we looked at the belt of truth, try to ask the question, what is the belt? What's the significance of a belt? But more importantly, what is truth? How do you put on or apply the concept of truth? Today we'll be taking a look at the question of the breastplate of righteousness. We'll get more on that in just a second. Let me read to you this out of the message. It says this, be prepared. You're, you're up against far more than you can handle on your own. Take all the help that you can get, every weapon God has issued, so that when it's all over, but the shouting, you'll still be on your feet. Truth, righteousness, peace, faith, and salvation are more than words. Learn how to apply them. So the reason why I like the idea that he kind of points out there is that we're really to understand what it means to apply these things. They're not just words or concepts or ideas that we're to sort of get into our memory banks and be in awe of, but really they're to be concepts that we apply, that we put on, and they actually begin to have some sort of pragmatic effect upon our lives. In other words, we live practically. There's a practice that begins to unfold or come forth from our lives as we begin to live these things out and begin to apply them in our lives. So the question then naturally arises, first of all, what is righteousness? Now, if the part of the armor that we're going to be taking a look at here today is the breastplate of righteousness. And the fact of the matter is, when was the last time you used the word breastplate? When was the last time you used the word righteousness? There are two phrases, there are two words that we really hardly ever use. So we have to do a little bit of kind of uh, historical understanding as to what this is. So First of all, breastplate. We kind of, for the most part, maybe at least know what a breastplate is. I'm going to go back to that picture where there's that soldier. Maybe we can do that. Um, get a little bit of visual there. So the breastplate would be the, kind of like this uh, silver thing that is on his chest. And the whole point of this, obviously, is to protect the vulnerabilities on his chest, his vital organs and his heart and so on and so forth. And the idea here that Paul is basically saying is, I want you to put on this breastplate of righteousness. So the question next is, what is righteousness? Now, most of us, when we use the word righteous or righteousness, we don't really use it, for one, we don't really ever use it, for one. Uh, secondly, when we do use it, it's always kind of in a negative connotation, like, oh, yeah, they're so self-righteous. So it's kind of in the negative connotation, like, they are so righteous, aren't they? And we use phrases like that that kind of have this negative connotation. But in the Bible, the idea of righteousness or righteous is a really important word. 
It's central to God because God himself is righteous. It's not just simply an attribute of God, but it's also an action of God. It's not only necessarily innately who God is, that God is righteous, but it's also something that God does. God does righteously. God acts righteously. So in other words, every single thing God does is somehow consistently in line with this notion of who he is, righteousness. So in other words, you can put it this way. God never acts in a way that is not absolutely consistent with what he thinks, with who he is. Now, that's a pretty major feat. How many of you actually always act totally consistent with the exact way of what you're thinking? None of you, all right? That's why some of you that actually made New Year's resolutions are so bummed because you've already failed, all right? You, like, start out, you know, January 1, you're all excited, you're like, I'm going to lose five pounds, and you, like, gain 10. You're like, oh. You know, the point of the matter is, is that we are not always consistent with our works, with our ideas and our thoughts and our mind. Not so with God. God is not only righteous, but God always also does righteously, or righteousness. So, again, what is righteousness? Now, think of it this way. Uh, i kind of written out a little bit of a definition here, sort of a little composite that I, I had made up. So, righteousness is the condition that is acceptable to God. It's the condition, or in other words, that is in agreement with God's ways. So, righteousness, whatever it is, it's the condition whereby God looks at that and is like, awesome. This is great. It's good. So whatever righteousness is, it's the state, it's the condition, it's the arena, it's the element, it's the action, the attribute where God just gives double thumbs up and he's like, awesome. All right. The closest thing I can maybe liken it to, if you were to think about in your mind the most pristine day for yourself, like what would be the best thing that could ever happen to you? So for me, all right, this may not be you, but for me, um, it's not entirely me as well, but uh, for me, like if, if or just how about you come along with me on this journey? Let's say, for example, we were all kind of in the same boat with regard to this. So here you are on an island. It's like 80 degrees. It's like nice, uh, warm, tropical wind blowing even in the shade. You have a coconut in your hand. It's absolutely beautiful. There's like four to five foot really good surf, just, you know, stones throw out in the, the ocean right there. It's absolutely blue. The sky is amazing. Big, white, puffy clouds. If your kids are there with you, the kids are playing in the sand. They're actually really getting along. They're, like, always saying please and thank you. And if, you know, the other, one kid, like, turns to the other kid, like, oh, you got a little bit of sand in your eyebrow. Let me get that off. You're, like, rather than being, like, ah. You know, like, it's, like, you look at that, and the kids are nice to each other. Your spouse is, like, you know, can I get you something to drink? You know, anything else? Can I rub, you know, lotion on your back? Can I go barbecue you a steak? You know, I mean, whatever the case is, at, at that moment of, of just where everything is literally humming, in that moment, you're, like, ah, everything is right. It's in a state where everything is right. The kids are in a state of rightness. Your husband or wife is in a state of rightness. The conditions of life are in a state of rightness. Everything is right. God, now that's kind of a microcosmic uh, or picture of the bigger macro picture of who God is and what God, God is all about, that God, when he created this world, Everything, after he created all, he said, it is good. That was another way of basically God saying, everything is right. Everything is harmonizing. Everything is working consistently in accordance to what I deem good. We know it didn't last that long. Or at least we don't know exactly that long. Uh, it, 
at some point, broke. Mankind broke. Mankind broke it. Rather than mankind being in alignment with the nature of who God is, mankind fell out of alignment or out of sync or out of agreement with God. So, for example, uh, mankind, in that sense, rather than being in a condition that was acceptable to God, mankind came into a condition that was not acceptable to God. In other words, Adam and Eve lying to each other, Adam and Eve deceiving one another, Adam and Eve lying to God, Adam and Eve taking advantage and abusing other things. God would look at that and say, this is, this is not what I would deem acceptable. This is not what I would call good. In the same way, if here you are in your beach and all of a sudden a shark comes up and kills three people out in the water and you spill over your coconut and the kids start hitting each other and your spouse starts yelling at you and everything at that point begins to fall apart. In other words, the rightness is now gone. It becomes unrightness or unrighteousness. Is this all making sense so far? No? You guys there? It's all making sense? So here's my point. Really what righteousness is, is it's this condition that is acceptable to God, the condition that is in agreement with God's way. So the unrighteousness would really be the opposite of it. On the other hand, it would mean that it's a condition that's not acceptable to God. So in other words, let's take this kind of on a personal scale. God says, love your neighbor. God says, care for your neighbor. Love your neighbor as yourself. What happens if rather than loving your neighbor, you go and you steal from your neighbor? Uh, You hit your neighbor. You damage your neighbor's goods and have no integrity enough to leave a note that says, hey, I hit your car, or whatever. God will look at that and say, that's, that's, that's not the way things are right. That's not the way it should be. That's not how I operate. It's not how the way things flow and hum and harmonize in this world. That's what brings brokenness. Now, if you were to take that and multiply that on a massive scale, what you have is our world, which is filled with, which is filled with brokenness. You have neighbors not caring for neighbors. You have neighbors not loving neighbors. You have people being rude to each other. You have constant breakdown on every, on every scale. It's one of the reasons why, for example, as human beings, we can look at various things in this world and be like, that's not right. It's one of the reasons why we can look at something and say, it's not right for a nine-year-old to be abducted from her village and sold to become the wife of a 30-year-old militant. One of the reasons why we look at it and say it's not right for a wife to be raped after her husband's been brutally murdered and then for her to lose her children. It's not right for her to become a sex slave. It's not right for a five-year-old kid to work in a factory and get paid pennies so that I can have a shirt that's only $4. These are things that we would look at and say they're not right. We would say that because they are not in alignment that treats our neighbor with kindness and love. Is this all making sense so far? Now, I, I realize like some of this is like, oh, wow, we're going we're gonna to go there. I don't know how we can't go there because this is all part of what it means to be in God's universe, which he created, that was intended to be right, that was intended to be good. But something horribly has gone wrong and brokenness has come into this world. And what the gospel is, this brings us back to Ephesians, by the way, the gospel is that God has done something about the virus of sin in this world. He's done something about it. He hasn't abandoned it. He hasn't turned away from it. He hasn't been indifferent to it. But he's actually come into this world and has allowed himself to be infected by that virus, even though while he was still righteous, to the point where he took upon the death of him, upon himself, 
to be crushed, to do something about it, to bring healing into our lives. And this is what Paul writes about in Ephesians, that God has done something about the brokenness in this world to bring about healing in this world, and at the same time, where healing has now begun to spread, where healing has now begun to replace brokenness, there is a dark, demonic terrorist that's always trying to undo what God has done. This is the devil. Paul says, don't fall prey to him. Don't let him sabotage or ruin the good work that God has begun in your life. But stand firm. Put on the whole armor of God that when it happens, when it comes, you can be strong. And this is why Paul would say, put on the breastplate of righteousness, among other things. Let me finish on one final thing before I move on to the next thought. That, again, we're still trying to ask the question, like, what is righteousness? Another way to think about righteousness, it's the state of being acceptable by another person. In this case, the state of being acceptable by God. If you think about it this way, every single one of us in our lives, every single one of us, there is somebody in our life that we have such great value, we place such great value upon, that we we want to be in a good relationship with them. Um, It could be a boss, it could be your spouse, it could be your boyfriend or your girlfriend, it could be your mom or your dad. And so we live our lives in such a way whereby we want to be in rights with them. So what happens when you fall out of right with them? What happens if uh, you do something that disappoints them, right? They kind of do the little tisk tisk, like, how dare you do that to me? And you're, you're like, you're devastated because you let them down. It wasn't like you intended to do it, but have you ever been in a relationship with someone where you never feel like you can live up to their standard? You ne- no matter what you do, it might be morally, it might be like, you know, you're in the kitchen and you know that they're far better cooked than you and you're like trying really hard to be a good cook and everything you do, like you're failing, you feel like you're failing over and over and over again. That feeling of constantly feeling like you're failing and not measuring up is a state of unrightness, unrighteousness. And Tim Keller, a uh, great pastor, says something like this. He says, Anyone who believes that our right relationship with God is based on keeping up moral behavior is on an endless treadmill of guilt and insecurity. Let's that again. Anyone who believes that our right relationship with God is based on keeping up moral behavior is on an endless treadmill of guilt and insecurity. So in other words, if you've ever looked at God and are like, I, I, I want to be in a right relationship with God. I don't want to be in the outs. I don't want to, you know, stand before God and be judged. I don't want to go to hell. I don't want to be in the wrong with God. I mean, he's the big man upstairs, and I don't want to make him mad. So I want to do anything I can to be on his right side. And I think God really likes it when people don't use cuss words, so I won't cuss. God really likes it when people, you know, don't have sex before they get married, so I'm going to do everything I can to not have sex before I get married. God really likes people that don't drink beer, so I'm not going to drink beer. God really likes people that go to R-rated movies, so I won't go to R-rated movies. So if you live your life, constantly trying to do these things to measure up to God's standard, you will always, always feel insecure and always feel a constant level, constant weightiness upon your soul that will push you down and break you. Because here's at the end of the day. Here's here's where the, the really, really good news is, is that God offers us not good advice, but good news. The gospel is, is, it's not good advice. It has advice in it. So this is one of the things that's so distinct with Christianity and other religions. Is that Christianity does not primarily come out and say, follow these like 15 steps and everything will be okay between you and God. 
and you'll go to heaven when you die. Christianity starts out not with advice, but with an announcement. The announcement basically is what we would call the good news. It's the announcement that God has not forsaken you, even though you in your sinful, broken, unrighteous status may or may not have brought it upon yourself. We all have. God hasn't forsaken you. It's an announcement that God has not abandoned you. It's an announcement that God has done something about the deep hurt and brokenness and virus in our souls. So much so that Paul would say that everything that God did for Jesus and raising him up from the dead, God will also do for those that are in Christ. The point is, is that if you are in Jesus, in other words, you're a Christian, you love God, you've given your heart to Jesus, you've, however you want to describe it, you have a heart, a life that has been realigned with this healing God, you are in Christ. And the way that God treats his son, Jesus, is the way that God treats you. How does God treat his son? Every time Jesus kind of comes on the scene, there's this voice that comes from heaven, God will always say something like this, my beloved son, God loves his son, Jesus. So if you're in Christ, it's not that God just simply bears with you. It's not like you're this, no offense, red-headed stepchild that God just kind of puts up with and bears, right? Sorry, no, no offense if you're red-headed and you're a stepchild, sorry. Uh, that you've, you've got an unfortunate condition in your life that has unfortunately been hijacked. But the point of the matter is, back on track, is that God doesn't just simply bear with you, he loves you. And he said everything in his possible strength to bring about a condition whereby you are acceptable and changed and reformed. This is what the gospel announces. Here's a couple things to think about because when we talk about the question or the idea of righteousness, uh, or in other words, a state of things being in a condition that is acceptable to God, uh, that then begins to unpack in all sorts of different ways within our lives. So what we should do then is begin to ask the question, okay, if God has an idea of acceptableness or things in which everything in existence, so if we can look at it this way, everything that we see, everything that really is not even seen, God created. That means that God has a, has a way by which that thing should function and flourish. But also means, because it's fragile, it also has a means by which it can be abused and taken care of, by which it will break and bring brokenness to others. So let me give an example. Let's say Henry Ford created, uh, I don't know if he actually created a car, but he created kind of a line of cars. So let's say, for example, he has a car made by Henry Ford, and you're like, you know what? This thing ought to fly. So you go drive it over a cliff. Like, this thing really should just be able to fly. And it doesn't fly because the law of gravity takes it down and destroys it. It crushes it. In other words, you are using this car in a way, actually abusing the way this car was actually meant to, to, to run. It was never meant to fly. It was meant to drive. So if you take something that God creates and says, this is how it flourishes, this is how it works, this is how it hums in consistency with my will. If you take it, you're like, I don't like it that way. I don't want to do it that way. I want to do it this way because this is the way I think it should work better. You will inevitably end up in a path of brokenness, ultimately death. And maybe that's where some of your lives are at right now. You constantly find yourself in a path, cul-de-sac, brokenness. And death. You may be wondering why. The question I think you've got to start with is asking, is your life filled with actions of unrighteousness? Doing things with your life, 
following ideas, desires, inordinate desires, that lead you down a path that says, well, this is how the culture teaches me how to do this. This is what my heart's telling me to do this. If you follow those voices, they will lead you down a path of brokenness. But God says, follow my voice. I will lead you down a path of righteousness and a path of life. That's what righteousness is. So that means that we can basically begin to ask questions like, well, then what does righteousness look like? What does rightness or righteousness look like within a marriage? Is, is there a standard? Is there a way in which a, a marriage should flourish? What does it look like? What about my sexuality? Like, does God have anything to say about my sexuality? This gift that he gave me says, this is my gift to you. Or am I simply to take my own sexuality into my own hands and use it in ways that feel right for me? If you've ever done that, you know that actually leads to a path of great shame, brokenness, and hurt. And yet, really, at the end of the day, it goes back to this original thing that God says, I gave you this, I created this, I have a purpose for it, and that purpose is ultimately righteous. If you take it out of that context and put it into any other context, it leads to unrighteousness, which is brokenness, and ultimately shame, and hurt, and pain, and death. And this is what we see, that we can begin to ask those questions. What about neighborliness? What does righteousness look like among our neighbors? Those are questions I think we've got to ask, because these are the ideas that are within the scope of righteousness. Here's a couple of passages to think about or consider. Psalm chapter 119 says this, 119 verse 172. It says, my tongue shall speak of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. So again, God's word is righteousness. It's one of the reasons why we encourage people, read your Bibles. Because your Bible actually provides God's word. God's word leads to a path of righteousness. God's word leads to a path of righteousness. Understand what God has to say. Ultimately, in the most ultimate sense, what God ultimately has to say, you're like, oh, I use the word ultimate a lot, because it is the ultimate, final word, revelation that God has to say. I said this, mentioned this last week. So in other words, some of us might be wondering, like, what is on God's mind? What does God have to say? Fortunately, we are not left in the dark because God does tell us what's on his mind. John chapter 1, verse 1 says this, uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. And the word, this concept, this idea, this logic, this notion of God was ultimately put on manifest display through Jesus. Everything God has to say about himself that he wants us to know can be seen in Jesus. Jesus is the revelation of the heart and mind of God. And this is amazing because the question is, did Jesus act righteously all the time? Jesus loved his neighbor. Jesus even loved his enemies. Jesus forgave. Jesus didn't take up violent opposition. Jesus gave even to those who sought his death. And this is what we see with Jesus. This is how Jesus treats you, by the way. First John chapter 3, verse 4 says this. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Again, the idea that lawlessness, the state of being out of sync with God's law, where there's no law, is the opposite of, you know, not being in the right of God's plan, leads to what he says, sin. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 34, kind of reaffirms this. It says, awake to righteousness and do not sin. The idea, again, here, this contrast between righteousness and sin. So, all that basically says is that we get a little bit of a better understanding as to what righteousness is. The next question I want to ask is, why is righteousness associated with a breastplate? Why is righteousness 
associated with a breastplate. So if a breastplate basically covers the vitals, how does righteousness, applying righteousness the way Paul is going to say, uh, as a coat of armor, as a means of protective gear against the destructive and corrosive influences of the world, the flesh, and the devil, if this is to be the case, why would Paul say this? Well, I think N.T. Wright, uh, New Testament scholar, actually has some really important things to say on this, and I'll just read what he says. He says, this is not just, this isn't just virtue, important though that is, it's the fact that the one true God is the one true judge, and he intends to put the whole world to right. Righteousness, or righteous, uh, rightness, or righteousness, is what I kind of put in parentheses. He says, indeed, the process already began when God vindicated Jesus, that means at his resurrection, and then vindicated or justified us in him, or made us acceptable, declared us to be acceptable in God. The fundamental justice and goodness of God and the status that Christians have of already being declared in the right before him is like a breastplate protecting us against the frontal attack. So here's what I think N.T. Wright's basically saying, is that the state or the fact that we have in Christ been declared, what's basically called imputed righteousness, that God sees us as right before himself because of an act that Jesus did for us that ultimately leads to actions from our lives that begin to show forth that we have had a fundamental change in our heart. Let me put it this way. What I think he's saying as far as a breastplate righteousness is that when we are changed by God, when we have this subjective experience with God where we say, I'm saved, Jesus saved me, I'm washed by the blood of the Lamb, however you want to describe it, when that begins to happen, one of the evidences or natural outflows of your life is that you will then begin to work. Uh, there'll be evidences of your life being able to be changed uh, within, on a horizontal level with other people. In other words, there will be a series of right actions that will come out of your life on a horizontal level with other people. In other words, people that you used to once be on the outs with, you used to once hate, you'll begin to forgive them and love them. People that were once your enemies, you will learn what it means. You will learn the practice of what it means to love your enemies. All of these things will begin to change and transform. Now, let's say, for example, you are saved. You claim, I know Jesus. But none of these things are actually happening in your life. So can you be a Christian uh, to some degree? I mean, maybe, maybe a very young baby Christian in your walk with the Lord and not have some of these immediate evidences of your life? Possibly. Possibly. But for a small season of time. If you claim to be a Christian for like 20 years, and over a history or a period of a very long time, and there's no evidences of forgiveness or kindness or generosity coming out of your life, it's very doubtful as to whether or not something is actually changed in your heart. You might have actions that look Christian, meaning you go to church every Sunday, you have a Bible, uh, you bought a Thomas Kincaid painting, you have all of these actions that may look Christian, but in reality, there is really no transformation in your heart. So here's the point. Here's the point. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17, speaks of a person that would come, and he's looking forward to the future. He's kind of imagining what would happen one day if God is going to set this broken world to right. How will God do it? What Isaiah imagines, he imagines that God will one day do it through a person. Somebody will come, an agent will come and bring about this healing, this restoration. And here's what he says. It's not just going to be any person, but what he imagines in his mind is that this person will be, like he says in verse uh, 17, uh, chapter 59, he says, he will put on a righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And verse 20 says, a redeemer will come to Zion. So the picture that I think Isaiah is imagining is that 
the way that God is going to begin to set this broken world to right will be one who will come with a breastplate of righteousness on. And he will have this seal, this, this ability to bring about healing. And he will be the Messiah. In other words, the anointed one that will bring about this healing. So here's the point that I think Paul is basically saying is that those that are in Jesus, those that trust in Jesus, those that follow God, are in this right relationship with God. In other words, they have the righteousness of God already upon them, but then that begins to live its way out in actual lifestyle of righteousness, what we would also sometimes call good works. So let me be real clear on this. If you're a Christian, if you've had the work of righteousness done upon your heart, a gift of God, an act of God, uh, then that will then begin to work its way out in your life by works of rightness or righteousness on a horizontal level. Is that making sense so far? So, to try to understand this uh, really is the final question I want to look at, and I want to wrap it up with this. So it leads to this final thought. What does righteousness then look like? What does righteousness then look like? Now, I want to let John, who was one of Jesus' closest friends, who obviously had kind of a front row seat to everything Jesus ever said, uh, was always at the majority of sermons that Jesus preached, so he knew much of what was on Jesus' heart. So therefore, it might even be safe to say, he knew a lot of righteousness. He was close to Jesus. Jesus was close to God. He saw how Jesus acted. Jesus showed kindness to people that didn't really deserve kindness. Jesus gave food to people that were hungry. Jesus opened eyes to people that were blind. Jesus gave forgiveness to people that were filthy and defiled in their souls. Jesus did good everywhere he went. John saw it all the time. Here's what John says. Beloved... John chapter 4, verse, 1 John chapter 4, verse 7. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. So it's on God's heart. Love. God loves. Love is from God. Love comes forth from God. Those who follow God love. He says, And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only begotten Son, so that we might live through him. In this love, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us, and that he sent his Son to be the propitiation, the covering, that which covers our shame, our brokenness, our sin, our unrighteousness. He covers that. Verse 11, he says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So there we have it. The beginning of this outworking. First, it begins where God begins to change us, and then it begins to work its way out of our lives into a horizontal level with other people. That's why he says in verse 11 again, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We would maybe think it would say, God so loved us, we should love him back. That's not what it says. I mean, if I were to come to you and be like, dude, I love you so much, you should love me back. I do not see how great I am, how much I love you, how much I've done for you. I want you to give that back to me. It would be like me saying, look how much greatness I've done for you. I want you to love my kids. So God says, it's like, look at how much good, how much love I've lavished upon you. Love one another. Play along with one another on the beach well. Don't throw sand in each other's eyes. Instead, take sand out of each other's eyes lovingly. Be kind to one another. And so what he goes on to say, he says, Not, no one has ever seen God. And if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So here's a quick question. Is it possible to say, um, I'm just going to live according to the ethic of love, but not believe in God? So here's the point I would make. If God is love the way 
John declares. And if all that Jesus is, is the righteousness of God. He is, he is the embodiment. He is the manifestation of everything that is right with God on earth. So if someone were to be like, I want the greatest right. I want to be righteous. I want to love other people. But I don't want to love Jesus. I don't want to affirm the goodness of Jesus. What you're actually doing is you're, affirm, you're disaffirming or non-affirming the greatest of love. And that, in and of itself, testifies to the fact of brokenness. So in other words, this is one of the reasons why I would say you really, truly cannot love apart from God's love. You really, in other words, to put it another way, a very exclusive claim, you cannot know salvation, life, healing, wholeness, apart from Jesus. Jesus is the fullness of the revelation of God. So therefore, to divorce all of these attributes that we as a culture love to talk about and revel in from their source actually is like cutting a rose from off of a bush that at some point is going to die. It has no life within it anymore. Love has to be connected to its source, Jesus. And then he goes on to say in verse 13, he says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. So again, we'll unpack that and in weeks to come as we begin to look at the concept of the Holy Spirit. Um, but he says in verse 14, he says, But we have seen and testify uh, that the Father sent us his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him, and he in God, so that we have, we have come to know and to believe that the love of, the love of God that, that he has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment, because as he has also said, we are in this world. So the picture is, is that one day, there is a day, a final day of reckoning, if you would, the idea of judgment is a day of reckoning. So if you think of it this way, there will be a day where the creator, we know him to be God through Christ, that this creator who created all things, the creator that gave you everything you have, gave you the breath that you have, if you're exceptionally, ridiculously, really, really good looking, Um, That is a gift from God. If you really don't have great looks, but you're really smart and intelligent, it's a gift from God. If you've got a really good job and make a lot of money, it's a gift from God. If you are married and your spouse is way better looking than you are, it's a gift from God. Whatever it is that you have, God has given us bacon, guacamole. Everything is a gift from God. Everything is a gift from God. One day we're going to stand before this God and give an account. Uh, What we did with our lives. How did we steward what he had given us? Will it reflect the purposes for which they were designed? Or will we stand ashamed? Will we stand with our heads bowed in a sense of failure? What John says, those that are in Christ have nothing to fear because the record of Jesus becomes your record. This is really good. That means that you stand before God, and God sees you as if you were to see Jesus' own son. Jesus, whom he loves, is how God sees you if you're in Christ. The record of Christ becomes your record. So therefore, that's why we would say you are justified, made righteous, or declared righteous in that sense. But that begins to work its way out, like I said, in our lives through actions. And so in closing, here's what he goes on to say. Verse 17 Read that. It says, by this is love perfected 
with us so that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. Verse 18, he says, there is no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he loved us. Verse 20 says, if anyone says, here's where the rub comes, I love God, but hates his brother, he's a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. For he who does not love his brother who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. The point that I think Paul is, or that John is making here is that righteousness, what it means to truly be living in a state of right, making right, reflecting the God who is righteous, doesn't just come forth in professions or confessions of, I love God. It comes forth in actions of loving neighbor. And it's not just simply actions of being kind and being nice to your neighbor. It's divorce from Jesus. This is why we say it has to all be intertwined, all connected, all flows from God into our hearts, changes us fundamentally, and then flows from our hearts and our lives into the lives of other people. We have to come to a reckoning. This is what I think, this is what it means to live with a breastplate of righteousness on. Because the flip side would be this. If you live your life constantly saying, well, I love Jesus, but hate your brother, and never being made right with your brother or your sister, whoever it may be. You are living in a place, if you are a Christian, you are living in a perennial place of brokenness. Is that not true? And that's right where some of you are at right now. And you're wondering, why is my Christian walk always stunted? It's because you refuse to allow the righteousness, the rightness of God that saved you begin to work through you and to wear that as a breastplate that protects you from the vulnerabilities that brings healing. And this is what God does is he calls us to come back to Jesus who is the righteousness of God to receive from him healing, cleansing, forgiveness whereby he reorders, reorganizes our lives. So what I'm going to finish with is for us just to respond. So why don't we all stand? I'm going to pray over us. We're going to sing we have communion in the back. I encourage you to partake of the communion. As you partake of the communion, I would highly encourage you to think about the fact that as you eat the bread and drink the cup, that you remind yourself that this broken piece of bread represents the fact that we have a Savior that was broken for us. That bread was once whole, but then it was broken. In the same way, our Savior was once whole, and yet he became broken for us, so that we, who were once broken, could be made whole. And that wholeness is not just, I have Jesus in my heart, everything's great. That wholeness begins there, it's not less than that, it's greater than that, to go through there, through your life, into the lives, on a horizontal level, into other relationships. Bring wholeness, bring healing. That is righteousness beginning to work through your lives. So let's pray, let's sing, let's respond, and we'll finish. God, thank you that we can turn our hearts to you. Thank you that you heal us. Thank you, God, that you are not ashamed to call us your own. You don't just bear with us. You love us. So, God, I ask you right now that you would just help our hearts respond in love, in confession, in faith.